Welcome to Sustainable Business Fridays. I'm your host, Katie Elman. Sustainable Business Fridays is the first podcast of its kind, bringing together students in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, not-for-profits, social entrepreneurship, and more. Twice monthly, these conversations go live via iTunes and Google Play. This week, I'm joined by second-year Bard MBA student Reagan Richmond, and we will be speaking with Bahar Gidwani of CSR Hub. Welcome, Reagan and Bahar. Reagan, can you tell us a little bit about your interest in CSR Hub and why you were interested in interviewing Bahar? Sure. Um, So I was particularly interested in interviewing Bihar um, because I have a deep interest in how big data primarily is influencing how we set our sustainability strategies going forward. We know now that because of the advances in data science, um, we are able to have much deeper insights into our customers and the ecosystems that our businesses are operating within. Um, So to be able to speak with someone like uh, Bahar, whose company is really helping to bring a lot of these um, learnings from the data to the forefront um, was inspiring to think about the ways that we can better integrate big data and use that to drive our sustainability decision-making. So Katie, I'm, I'm happy to be speaking with you and Reagan. Uh, BARD's one of my favorite programs. I've been very excited about your efforts to bring uh, a truly innovative sustainability program to us here in New York. So thanks a lot for giving me this chance. Uh, I didn't really mean to get involved in um, CSR Hub. I didn't really mean to get involved in sustainability. It's not my fault. It was all my fault of my partner, Cynthia Figgy, because she got involved in sustainability and she made me do it. Um, she founded one of the first sustainability consultancies back in 1996. And I've known C- uh, Cynthia since we were in business school together and have followed her career and, and loved a lot of the different exciting things she's done over, the, over time. I didn't really understand sustainability and all the stuff she was doing in her company, but it sounded like an interesting and worthy thing to do, uh, but not something that I needed to be part of. Um, I then sold the company, uh, was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, and Cynthia said, well, why don't you help me for a little bit? Try to help me sort out how to handle data and sustainability and bring together some of the disparate data that's used to rate companies into some kind of more rational system. Um, I had a lot of experience with this kind of thing. I'd done a lot of different data, organized data under underlying businesses. So I said yes, and it's now eight years later. And um, that's that's kind of how it happened. I, I I'm happy it did. I've turned out that I'd always been interested in sustainability, just didn't know it. And I've certainly always been interested in data and technology, and those are two of the things that we have to do. I had to learn, though, an awful lot of terminology. I still am. There's uh, more acronyms and and shorthand kind of things in this industry than you could possibly imagine. And I've also had to um, try to understand better how all of this fits into the world as a whole. Uh, And uh, still working on it, still trying to figure out how to do it right. So over these eight years uh, since beginning CSR Hub, I know that there 
has been a tremendous amount of growth in the field of sustainability and corporate social responsibility. Um, could you share with me what um, maybe one of the major shifts that you have seen uh, occur within this industry over time? Well, uh, people talk about sustainability as having three parts. Uh, they call talk about ESG, environment, social, and governance. And one of the fun things that happens when you have a really huge base of data is that you can see how those three things interact. Uh, we did a study uh, based on our data going back to 2008 that showed in 2008, 9, and 10, governance, uh, interest in governance took off like crazy. All of the scores in governance rose for the companies we were tracking, and it really looked like everybody was worrying about governance. And I think that makes sense. Um, governance is one of those things that uh, ties very closely to the financial crisis of 2008. It's one of the things that, the, that was revealed in 2008 was that governance hadn't been as good as people thought. Our data then showed that in 2011, 12, and 13, environment took off. People started investing more time and money in it, started worrying about their environmental performance. And I think that also makes sense to me. That was the era in which we understood that we were really destroying the entire world, and companies decided they had to stop doing that. They had to do their share of trying to fix things. What I love right now is that social is taking off, 2014. 15, 16, social scores have started to rise as companies have started to understand that in order to be long-term survivors, uh, in order to compete for good employees and to be acceptable <clears throat> in, within their communities, yeah, companies have to be better on the social dimension of their business. So it's when you have a big set of data, we have 95 million pieces of, of data now on uh, 16,500 companies in 133 countries, when you have that kind of breadth of data, you start getting an, an opportunity to do um, social trend analysis. And you can look at how companies have been performing socially over very long time, periods of time. So with that, you began to mention, uh, especially kind of from 2011, on um, this movement of business really understanding the role that they're playing in um, social and environmental um, good. So I wanted to ask next, thinking about what is really driving the shift from the, the purely financial reporting towards this reporting on ESG metrics. And if you've maybe noticed that there was an event that began to shift the investor analysis towards this more integrative approach to assessing the companies. Uh, we're primarily focused on the on the company side of things. Uh, we have a few investors who use our data. We talk to them, and I'm a CFA, so theoretically I'm supposed to know something about what investors do. But what we've been trying to track is the shifts that go on within corporate thinking and the effects that these things have on corporate uh, behavior, corporate uh, profitability, ease of running a company. What I think occurred uh, in these last few years is the companies, company managements, senior company managements, have realized it's easier to run a sustainability-oriented company than it is to one, run one that's not. Um, if a company is positive, socially positive, um, people will want to work for it. Communities will welcome it when they want, when it wants to open a new facility or expand. Um, yes, investors will perhaps like it better, but investors come and go employees stay with you throughout their entire career if you're lucky 
And so I think it's much more important to think about the social sides. On the environment side of things, companies have found that uh, implementing sustainability programs saves them tons of money, reducing your carbon footprint, reducing your packaging, improving the recyclability of your products, makes them better products and makes you more money. And they found that improving their government's programs, having a stronger board, better leadership ethics, improving transparency, tends to reduce risk. And so you as a business manager have less risk in your business. Uh, that's a good thing. So that's the way we've looked at it. And those are the kinds of shifts we've seen people going through. It's an everyday process for the business manager figuring out how to run a business better. And sustainability is playing an increasingly large role in it. It's one of the many non-financial factors that business people have to deal with. Thank you. So you've written recently about this second generation of ESG <laughs> metrics. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could share, uh, I know you've written a good bit, you could share really what the second generation of ESG metrics is and how that differs from the first generation. Yeah, it's, it's something that we, again, we can see from our data and it's a very interesting process to see. We have 480 different data sources mm -hmm. and a lot of the data sources um, had been uh, and continue to be driven by the things that companies say about themselves. Uh, so companies would write a, an annual report. They might not put very much about sustainability in there, but then they'd, they'd publish separately a sustainability report. And in the sustainability report, there'd be fluffy clouds and little children eating ice cream. It might not have anything to do at all with their business, but it all looked very nice and seemed very wonderful and uh, was aimed towards trying to improve the way the company was viewed by society in general. So this kind of self-reported data was the basis for many years <clears throat> in how people Use the social performance of companies, there really wasn't anything else to rely on. The thing that's happened now is that um, much of what's been uh, is being talked about in sustainability is moving into uh, more formal types of communications. Companies are being asked to or being forced to include their sustainability performance discussions in their financial filings, which are heavily regulated, or in very well-structured um, sets of data, they're going to people like their, their um, security regulators that are going to certain kinds of other uh, governmental regulation bodies. There's all kinds of carbon tracking systems, for instance, being set up. California has one now. There are all kinds of employment tracking systems being set up. There are ways of tracking conflict minerals um, there's a group called SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, that is asking all publicly traded U.S. companies to report certain kinds of metrics. So as you as you go across these kinds of uh, new reporting systems and as they become more formalized, you get a new brand of sustainability metrics, a much more uh, rigorously defined and a much um, much more uniform type of data across companies about their non-financial non performance. And I think that's an exciting opportunity, especially for a data-driven company like ours, to better understand how companies really are performing. Great, so you mentioned um, these different systems such as SASB that are developing. I'm wondering what the underlying uh, maybe trend that you're seeing that it really is driving this movement towards the second generation 
metrics versus the self-reporting and what um, maybe was the impetus for developing groups such as um, SASB or um, what GRI has developed? Yeah, GRI has something called the GSSB. The World Federation of Exchanges is involved in this. There's something in the US, in the EU called EU Directive 21. <clears throat> um, there are tens of thousands of companies that are going to be affected by these things. So it is pretty, pretty scary probably for a lot of companies. Um, we think that the the underlying driver has is the same thing that drove us to exist. We exist because the data sets that are out there are very disparate and poorly organized. One rating source will say that a company is doing a great job. The next rating source will say the company is doing a lousy job. And a poor company manager who's trying to, who's sitting in the middle being rated left and right um, can't really figure out what's going on. Can't figure out whether his or her company is doing better or worse than another company. Can't figure out whether or not he or she is going to be accepted as a supplier to a bigger company. Um, can't figure out whether or not he or she is going to get a bonus this year because he or she is doing a better job on sustainability strategy. So the existing data sets were giving very poor quality feedback to the people in the field who are actually trying to implement sustainability programs. And these new approaches in the end turned out to be efforts to try to improve that feedback. Many of them have come in theory from investors who are claiming that they need non-financial information in order to better understand the risks and to better under analyze companies. But the side effect and the most positive side effect is that companies in turn will have to better organize their sustainability data, report it more consistently, and as a result, will be better able to understand their own sustainability performance and to set clearer goals for themselves. So I, I think there's a lot of unintended consequences here. Investors are, are a funny group. They, don't, they aren't necessarily very rational. I know they're supposed to be. If you think about it, the last thing in the world investors ought to want to do is to have more consistent, better data. Because the better the data is, the more consistent it is, the less chance an investor has to generate alpha to outperform other people. The, the more risk there will be that everybody else will know the good things you know, and therefore you won't be able to make money. So in the zero-sum game of, of investing, standardization is a bad thing. And yet, for some reason, a lot of investors are pushing for it. So I was curious um, about that conundrum. So we know within this first generation, there is this challenge um, and that you have many different um, groups that a company might be reporting to, whether mm -hmm. it's Wall Street analysts or not-for-profit. Some companies tell me that they're getting 200 um, or more requests per year for data, including from students. <laughs> Some of them probably at Bard. <laughs> Very likely. <laughs> but so, um, I'm, I'm wondering within that, you just said that, you know, standardization actually, you know, moves us away from having this greater set of data, but also you'd recognize that among these different um, sort of survey or analyst groups that there's really been a low level of correlation between the scores that companies are receiving. So how do we balance um, the need for understanding where a company really sits on um, their sustainability or their ESG performance and um, still being able to develop this broad breadth of data? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that 
that the inconsistency um, that I've been talking about, as I said, is a bad thing for investors. Uh, if you look at the major data sources that, that we track from Wall Street, for instance, we'll often find that one major data source like MSCI might have uh, only a 30% correlation in its views with another major data source like Thompson or Iris or VGO. So these are well, um, well-founded companies, uh, data, data analyst companies, hundreds of analysts beavering away every day, trying to figure out what's going on inside companies, reading everything they can. And yet, <clears throat> as you look across uh, the S&P 1200, for instance, which I recently studied, 30% uh, correlation between two major sources and how companies are performing. Um, you could look at that and you could say, oh my gosh, that's awful. From a company manager's perspective, it's extremely confusing and frustrating because you don't know really whether you're doing well or bad because one source says you're doing well and the other one says you're doing badly. But from an investor's point of view, and this is what I was saying before, it actually could be good because if one of them happens to be right, or happen to be right more often than the others, and you happen to be their client and get their data, you're theoretically going to make more money than your peers. Now, there's an interesting um, inconsistency here about the idea of, of investors who care about social issues, for instance, who claim at least that that's what they're doing, that they care about social issues, they want to buy the best performing companies socially and hold only those companies doing it with the intention of making more money than other people. Um, it's Investing is a zero-sum game. And investors who seek to invest in better companies in order to make more money are, in a sense, trying to take money from other people. There are other um, strategies for investing that I think are more um, consistent with the overall idea of sustainability. There's a group, for instance, of investors who seem to have fairly explicitly accepted that investing in sustainable companies might actually underperform investing in uh, less sustainable companies. So they recognize that if they remove whole chunks of the market from their investment policy, that they might underperform, just as you would if you did any other strategy that removed whole chunks of the market. Anytime you limit your opportunities for investment, you tend to underperform. Those investors are trying to bring back in then measures of return that are non-financial. They're trying to measure a social return. And if they add that social return to their financial return, they're whole again. There was a nice study done by Cambridge Asset Management that showed that sustainability-oriented hedge funds returned about uh, 600 basis points in the most recent quarters, while non-sustainability-oriented ones returned at about 800 basis points. So 2%. If you're willing to give up 2%, you could be ethical and buy only companies that are good companies. And that may end up being in the way in which this all works out. That's an interesting point to bring up since there seems to be a lot of discussion around whether the e um, you know, in using ESG screens in your investment is um, going to let's say put you, you know, in a, a better place or have a, a higher return in your portfolio. Um, mm -hmm. Because I know that there are many sort of studies that on the other side say that mm -hmm. we have, um, you know, sustainability oriented um, funds that are outperforming. Well, yeah. So, yeah. If you look at if you look at those studies, you'll see that they're they're deeply flawed. Um, 
and and if you go back to some of the stuff we were just talking about, one of the deepest flaws is that they're based on self-reported information. Okay. Um, I don't know, maybe at Bard, you know, you can tell your professor that you deserve an A and you get one. Mm -hmm. But you know, that would be a nice way of running yeah. a school. Yeah, I, yeah, there you go. So, so uh, if you look at all these studies and you say, well, yeah, the people who self-report themselves to be the best uh, do the best in the stock market, I can believe it might be true over the short term. But I think there might be better arguments, for instance, for momentum. If a company does moves from being less good performance in ESG and moves to being better, that change in performance might be a better indicator of an opportunity for increased um, stock market return than somebody who's already doing the best they possibly could and can't do any better. But come back to the, the underlying issue. I, I really wish, I hope somebody would finally point this out in some nice scholarly article, the inconsistency between trying to invest for social good and at the same time trying to make more money than other people do. Um, if, if I sell a company because I think it's a poor social performer and then I buy another company because it's a good one, I've already done my job as an investor in one sense. I've, if, if my client, if the person who gave me the money to invest wanted me to invest that way, then I've, I've met their social needs. I might though not be meeting their financial needs and I have to make sure that I explain to my clients that that might be the situation. And all of these people in the ESG investment space who don't make that explanation, who don't warn people that there's a danger in what they're doing that they might underperform the market, I think are doing a disservice to the space. Now remember, we're not primarily oriented about investors. So yeah. those the comments I'm making here are editorial comments. From a business perspective, we're convinced that companies that are more socially positive, that have better sustainability characteristics, actually operate better. So for instance, we've shown that stronger sustainability performance is tied to better brand performance, is are tied to lower risk or tied to lower costs of credit. These are real um, tangible things that an operating manager loves. Having a, a stronger brand, wow, that's super. Excellent. Might not be tied to stock market performance, but sure is nice to have a better business. Yes, and that's an interesting point there to notice the separation between running a business well and what returns you might see in the stock mm -hmm. market. In fact, the correlation between those two is still subject to a lot of debate and tends to have all kinds of lags and inefficiencies in it that I think are somewhat unfortunate. Yes. So I want to shift our conversation um, to move back into we're speaking a lot about really the breadth of data that's available and you've coined this concept, dark data. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak more about what this dark data is, where it it could be pulled from, and really what's continuing to keep it in the dark. Yeah, um, so dark data, as you probably know from the astronomy side of things, um, it's this stuff that binds the whole universe together, and yet we don't seem to know very much about it. It's out there, and and in every part of the universe is affected by it. We feel its gravitational pull. In the same way in the sustainability space, there's a ton of information that's exchanged between companies, that's exchanged between companies and their government, sometimes between companies and their employees, that is very interesting from a sustainability point of view, but is not visible outside of those exchanges. So companies, for instance, are giving their um, 
a lot of information about the health and welfare of their employees, about accidents, spills to the U.S. government. <clears throat> Most companies now um, are involved in supply chain reporting. So Walmart, for instance, has asked all 100,000 people who sell products in its stores to fill out a scorecard of information about their um, how they treat their employees, how they package goods, what their carbon footprint is, and things like that. We know these scorecards exist. We know companies are exchanging tons of sustainability data with other parties, but we don't get to see it. As a result, <clears throat> we don't get to see a, um, a lot of the data that's actually driving sustainability performance, and that's the dark data. My hope would be that we can make it economically favorable and socially positive, something that's socially demanded, to have more and more of that data exist. Imagine, for instance, if you're looking for a supplier and um, you could leverage off all of the work that all of the other people in the marketplace have done looking for a similar kind of supplier. You want somebody who's got a good carbon footprint, treats their employees well, doesn't package excessively, and lo and behold, you'd like to see what Apple, Microsoft, uh, everybody else bought uh, that kind of product from. As it stands right now, you can't find that out. Right, so you mentioned um, making it more economically uh, feasible mm -hmm. or to be able to see this dark data. Um, I'd like to ask what other trends um, would work towards helping to illuminate more of this dark data? What could bring it to the forefront? Well, the reason it's, it's economically unfair now is that the data is being created by companies uh, at expense. So a company joins Walmart's program, it has to fill in the scorecard that costs it money. And yet it doesn't get any benefit other than keeping a customer. It's not getting a new customer out of it, it's just keeping the existing customer. So it's asymmetric right now economically. If the company could fill out that scorecard and if there was a place, a repository, where it could file the scorecard or a part of the scorecard for everybody else to see, then the, the economic cost of creating the data would be balanced by the marketing and business benefits of sharing the data. And so that's why I think we could rebalance this thing pretty simply. It's, it's clearly to the company's benefits, the, uh, the data generating company's benefits to have dark data be visible. Where it's been unattractive is to the supplier or receiving party. So uh, Walmart doesn't necessarily want Target to know all of its best suppliers. And keeping them secret and keeping the data they've gotten secret gives it an economic advantage over its suppliers and also over its competitors. The same thing's true within the government. The government um, doesn't necessarily want to share all the data it gets uh, on how companies are performing on accidents and so on, because it would, in a sense, reveal how lousy the government is at preventing those kinds of things. So there's there's all kinds of uh, of reasons, mostly legal and competitive, why this data hasn't been uh, exchanged freely. There are all kinds of business reasons and some legal and competitive reasons why it should be exchanged freely. I think the balance is starting to tip towards more exchange rather than less exchange. And it's up to us to figure out ways of making those exchanges occur in a safe and economically sensible manner. So we've been, as I said, working. We effectively have already done this. If you think about it, CSR Hub is already an exchange of data among companies that's essentially free. I wanted to ask, um, in thinking about this, as the scales are beginning to tip towards this greater transparency and mm -hmm. 
you know, companies are seeing the value and, you know, in, instead of being more concerned on sort of the competitive proprietary side, recognizing the value of maybe sharing um, more of what's happening in say their supply chains. Um, you mentioned that one of the things was the need for this repository um, for this information to go to. So I'm curious um, what CSR Hub's role might be in um, providing that space for companies as they wish to be more transparent and share. Well, as, I, as I mentioned, we already are a repository like that. Yes. You can go to our site, csrhub.com, and you can put in the name of any of the 16,500 companies that we track, and you can see basic ratings information. Mm -hmm. We make money out of selling more detailed information. We make money out of doing analyses and building tools around this so that people can better manage their business. So we see ourselves as a paradigm of where this, this market needs to go in the, in the future. People should be producing thin layers of data as we have that are consistent and broad, that cover as many, in our case, companies as possible. We should have other people doing similar kinds of thin layers of data on products, thin layers of data on business strategies and different types of um, uh, performance measurement and analytical tools. And as we get all these different layers built, then they can be put together into what I think of as a stack. Um, if, you if you know how microprocessors are built and computers are built, they talk about a stack, about each, each party in the microprocessing uh, chain of events doing their share. So we see ourselves as building a, a part of a stack, a part of an ecosystem, and by having some part of what we do be transparent and visible to everybody, we encourage other people to make some part of what they do transparent and visible to anybody. The transparent parts, the exchangeability of that will move society forward. The non-transparent parts, the proprietary parts of that, allow us to fund our business. And while we're a B Corp, we're also a for-profit business. And we have a social mission through the B Corp side of using transparency to change corporate behavior. We have a business uh, driver to make money out of it. And we feel there's an actually pretty good opportunity to combine those things together in this kind of business. Excellent, thank you. So with sustainability becoming much more data-driven and these metrics being increasingly rigorous, what types of tools for data analytics or metric systems would you suggest that someone just entering the field most focus on? Oh boy, that's a hard one. I mean, of course, my my um, my first response has to be CSR Hub because, of course, we have the best analytics and tools in the business. We're the only people, really, with analytics and tools that are built for corporate managers in the metric space. I think as you go beyond. Um, overall sustainability metrics when you think about uh, what's going on in this area in general. We're a big data company. Big data is an increasingly important part of sustainability, so it's important to understand what big data actually is rather than the hype around it and be able to understand how to extract meaningful signals about corporate performance out of large amounts of data. Um, sustainability managers typically sit between other parts of a company. They're not, they don't have their own department with, uh, you know, infrastructure and all kinds of assistance and people bringing them coffee. They instead are, <clears throat> are often a part of another division, a part of another area of a company and are charged with integrating different parts of a company together in order to achieve common goals. 
that's a very exciting and challenging role, but it also means that they often don't have uh, data processing support. And all of the information that, that they receive is from somebody else's systems, often gathered for reasons that don't have anything to do with sustainability. So they have to, uh, I don't know if you know the most recent, um, in the SASB standard, the, the standard for um, apparel companies requires apparel companies to gather the weight of their top five materials. And then for each of those materials, determine what percent of them was certified and by whom. And then to analyze for each one of the certification processes for each one of the materials, how it might change based upon what might happen in the future sustainability-wise. So you're the poor manager charged with uh, carrying out that standard and figuring out what's going on. You better hope somebody inside the apparel company has been weighing the feathers and the nylon and the cotton and keeping track of who they bought it from, knows their names and, and where they sit. And you better hope that each of the suppliers who supplied it to you kept track of their certification stuff or your toast. So I think as a, in terms of data management, I don't think it's, I think you could probably be um, proficient at Excel and various kind of database tools and that'd be, that'd be the skill that you need. But the broader skill set is figuring out how to get other people to give you stuff that you need to let you into their pants, to let you figure it, to let you look around and see what they've got without getting pissed off at you and, and telling you to go away. And I don't know what skill you'd call that. That's probably perfect skill for a Bard MBA though, right? You guys are good at, at, uh, at actually being social enough to understand how to talk to people about what, yeah. what you need. Learning to really work cross-function to be able to gather that data and yep. maybe anticipate the data that we're going to need so that we can ask for it. Yep, it's, <laughs> it's a question it's a of asking for, for the company to uh, <clears throat> right. come up you'll, with it. You'll <laughs> ask for it and people will tell you that they don't have it and then you'll have to find nice ways of poking them to, to the point where they realize they might actually have something that could work if you just transform it a certain way. Thanks so much for joining us today, Bahar. You can learn more about CSR Hub by visiting csrhub.com. Join us for the next Sustainable Business Fridays, where we'll be speaking with Elizabeth Salaya of Hudson River Housing. Bard MBA in Sustainability. Lead the change. Learn more at bard.edu.